Wonderful. Praise the Lord. You may be seated. Why don't we uh, open up in a word of prayer together and just ask the Lord to bless us, okay? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much today for your grace, your mercy, your strength. Thank you, Lord, for the health that you have imparted to us today to be able to come to church and worship you in spirit and truth. Lord, we know that many brethren are sick right now. We know that uh, this is the flu season, and we know how hard it is at times to um, to be feeling well enough to come to church, and so I'm, I'm very uh, grateful for your people that are here today, and we just pray you strengthen all of the families that might be dealing with sickness, and uh, Lord, we just pray that you would use our time together here, Lord, to um, just to, to instruct us and to... Uh, build us up and edify us in our understanding of the doctrine of the church. More importantly, Lord, just on a practical level, to understand what your will is for us in relationship to the church. And we pray that you would help us to have your perspective of the church. Lord, we pray that you would help us to see the church even as you see it, Lord, with your heart, your love, and your compassion upon the church. And that we would esteem the church very highly, Lord, even as you do, that we would see the church for what it is and that you would help us, Lord, to be renewed in our mind, to be transformed in our mind, to know what the will of the Lord is. And Father, just to understand um, that in the church we are fellow workers with you in your kingdom. And so, Lord, we pray, help us now, Lord. Give us a heart, Lord, to condescend Lord, to these great truths and obey them and help us to uh, just uh, uh, help us to, to, to come into a greater purity of our doctrine of the church. Lord, we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, as you can see, we're dealing with some uh, technical issues today. Some of our lights are not working, so uh, it's going to be a little... I try to scoot into where I thought it was a little bit more lit, and so that's why I'm kind of hovering over you today. So... Uh, but uh, welcome, everybody. It's good to see everyone. God bless you all for coming. As you can see, I created a nifty little PowerPoint. You can see up there. Again, when it comes to technology, I'm very proud of anything that I'm able to achieve. And so that's a grand, I mean, that's a huge monument to my grand technological abilities. And so I hope that you will enjoy this. But um, let's just introduce this, um, this next Sunday School uh, study that we're doing on ecclesiology. Uh, number one, what is ecclesiology? Somebody came up to me last week at church and said, I never heard the word ecclesiology until you said the word ecclesiology. Ecclesiology is the doctrine of the church, the doctrine of the church. Um, I think you all know that. Most of you know that, especially if you're members here at Heritage Grace, you should know that. Uh, and there are basically a couple of different ways that we can approach uh, the doctrine of the church, and certainly ways that I was thinking about approaching this this uh, this doctrine, and one of those is basically to give kind of a customary, systematic theology of ecclesiology, where we literally deal with you know what what is church government, what is the church composed of, what is Christ's authority in the church, what is an elder, what is a deacon, what are the offices of a church, how do you do church discipline, you know those kinds of things, and I thought, well, I want to approach things a little bit different. Uh, because I have a, a, a pretty particular agenda in mind, and that is to elevate our view of the church. I guess overall, my aim in this study is to get us to love the church, 
because you understand we live in an age today where uh, a high view of the local church is very rare and a low view of the church is very common. And at least I know uh, in, in your walk, in your, in your Christian life, you're going to talk to people and you're going to meet friends and family that are associated with churches and things like that, or you're going to run into people that you know, or you're going to see people on Facebook or something, and you're going to hear statements about the church and things that are sub-biblical and that I fear uh, that our church needs to really be educated about and, and, and that we don't fall into the same type of mentality that much of the world thinks about in terms of the church. And so I'm definitely very, very sensitive to the idea that um, there's a lot of really unbiblical views of the church out there today and, and kind of on all sides, all spectrums of the church. Uh, I mean, you could have a, a view of the church that is exaggerated. Uh, this is very common in, in Pentecostal circles where the prophet, you know, the pastor is the prophet he is the, he's the prophet, the apostle of the church, you know. It's like his word is like infallible, you know. Uh, and I've heard stories. Many of you have told me stories of being at churches like that where if the pastor says it, I mean, that's it, you know. If he tells you, you can't marry that girl. I mean, that is the decree of God, you know. And you're not even allowed to, dis, to, to disobey his word, you know, things like that. So you have those kind of expressions of of an exaggerated doctrine of the church, which is totally unbiblical. On the other hand, and I think maybe more common though, what I've experienced is that people tend to have a low, low view of the local church where maybe respecting your elders is a challenge for people. They don't see the need for it. They don't see, uh, you know, they don't see the value of it and they don't see the beauty of it. And so there's, there's a balance there, okay? Uh, if you have questions, you can ask questions. I'll have to probably ask the question so that everyone can hear it, but feel free to ask uh, questions uh, in regards to anything, okay? Uh, I just thought we'd start with a scripture. Let me see how to do this. Oh, there you go. That's how you do that, okay? Uh, so 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, uh, there is an interesting detail here that sort of lays the whole groundwork for what I want to talk about, and that's in this verse when he says, Paul tells Timothy, in case I'm delayed, I'm writing so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the support of the truth, which is just a marvelous uh, marvelous verse, really, when you start breaking down what is, what is the support of the truth, what is the pillar, why is the church a pillar, the church is a, the church of the living God, the household of God. These are wonderful, wonderful titles for the church. Uh, but what I want to zero in is on that word ought, how one ought to conduct themselves in the church. Because you see, the word ought, actually in the Greek, um, it's a bit more powerful than that. The Greek word is day, which literally means necessity, or if you would, must. And so ought is, it's a good translation, but it doesn't get across with Paul's heart. I think it's even a bit more urgent than that. Paul is saying, how someone must conduct themselves in the church. So that's a little bit more powerful. And so that particle there, day, it comes into play. And so I think that's a little bit more important. But a question I think we, we could ask is very simple. Uh, I think I even have it here. What is, no, I don't. What is the church and why does it matter? And uh, just, I guess, for the, the doctrine of the church, when we think about the church, how would you define the church? 
what would be your definition of the church? You can say the people of God. You can say uh, it's where the elect come to worship. Uh, I mean, there's so many different ways that we can talk about the church. It's an assembly of the saints that are gathered together. Uh, it's the place of worship. And so we can think of the church in a local sense. It's a, it's a, it's a place, right? The church is a sphere, maybe. It's a realm of salvation, right? That's certainly good because uh, think of this. When you undergo church discipline, for example, you are literally going out of the sphere of safety, the sphere of salvation in a sense. You're kind of getting out from, from beneath the covering of God. And so Paul even talks about this when he talks about church discipline. He talks about, you know, uh, in a sense, giving someone over to Satan right? It's kind of a surrendering a soul over to be exposed to the full forces of the world and of, of the satanic influence. It's kind of terrifying, you know? Uh, and so uh, the, the, the church is definitely a, a safety, uh, a, a place of safety, a refuge, okay? But the church is comprised of both universal and local expressions, which means the universal church is something that is invisible, the universal church is that which is comprised strictly of the elect or the saved, people who are genuinely saved. And so the invisible uh, and elect church of God is also uh, not subject to denominational boundaries, things like that. It's, it's all the saved people everywhere from every walk, every, not every walk, but you know what I mean. Sure, I guess God does save us out of every walk of life, but could be from any denomination, any background, anything like that, uh, and your participation uh, is your participation mainly in the spirit, the fact that you are in the spirit. And so I'm thinking of passages like Ephesians chapter four, where the Apostle Paul talks about the unity that we have in the spirit, okay? And that unity is, uh, is something that is strictly enjoyed by the universal church. You could be identified with the local church, but not be part of the universal church. And so you can come to church, you can visit the church, you could even join the church, you could even preach in the church and not be part of the universal church. I'm reminded of John Wesley, who for years, having gone to seminary and having been an evangelist and a preacher, and for years he would say he preached as an unconverted false convert. And so, I mean, that shows you that salvation really is uh, the, the thing here. And so, but also, it's also the local church, and the local church is really our focus. The local church is where we want to uh, put our, our focus and, uh, and, and really begin to, uh, to think about our participation in the church. Because, of course, in one sense, we are not even, in a sense, there's no practical participation in the universal church. That is a mystical or spiritual phenomenon. But practically, we do participate in the local church. Uh, that's where we're found. That's where we operate. That's where we uh, engage in good deeds and the love of the brethren and serving the Lord and using your gifts and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So the local church is very important. Uh, why does the church matter? That's a question I ask. You know, what is church and why does it matter? Now, you know my question is very practical, right? <laughs> that's a pretty practical question. And it's meant to, in a sense, provoke answers like this. Why does the church matter? Why, you know, this has everything to do with the very practical uh, matters of church membership, 
church attendance, your participation in the church, serving the church. I personally don't resonate with a whole lot of low views of the local church. I don't know why. I got saved. All I knew was that from now on, I'm going to serve the local church until I die. I mean, that's kind of the attitude I had from the very beginning. And so as soon as I could, I went into the church. I participated in the church. I served in the church. I learned. I, I tried to do as much as I could in the church. And so, you know, I kind of done it. I've done it all. I'm kind of the jack of all trades in the church. I've been the janitor. The sound guy, I've been the, uh, the Sunday school teacher, I've led apologetics and evangelism, and uh, uh, I led worship for many years, you know, I, I kind of did everything, I don't know if I was good at everything, but I did it all, and because uh, I just felt like the church is, I'm going to throw my whole life into this church. Uh, part of coming out to Texas many years ago now, Trish and I, I had a really hard time finding a church because I knew I need to find a church where I will invest my whole soul. And, and I just kept looking for churches going around and whatnot. And uh, that was in 2007. That's when I met Tom Pennington. How many of you guys know Tom Pennington? But Tom Pennington was just, had just recently arrived at Countryside uh, in Southlake. And I remember talking to him in the parking lot and saying, man, I'm just looking for a good church, you know. <laughs> He's probably looking at me like, who is this guy? Uh, but it's because I understood that my whole life would have to do with this church, whichever church I picked, you know, and... Uh, and certainly we want to be very cautious about what church we go to, where we decide to identify, where we decide to join. You can go to the opposite extreme of that, of course, and you can be so incredibly critical and picky and whatnot that you just, you, no church is good enough for you. And that certainly is a problem, you know, because it's kind of like what Jesus said, right? You know, with the measure of judgment that you judge, it will be measured to you. And so if you're going around just scrutinizing all Christianity everywhere, no one's good enough for you. Well, be careful, brother, because last time I checked, you're a sinner too. So, you know, you're going to find a church that's going to be imperfect. And when you get there, it'll be even more imperfect than the moment that, <laughs> before you got there. <laughs> so why does it matter? Number one, the whole Christian life is lived in the local church. This is a major theological point. Understand that everything in the pastoral epistles, everything in Paul's epistles, everything written in the Bible uh, we could say, is written with the assumption that the Christian lives in association with the local church. Nothing is written outside of that. And so uh, the Apostle Paul writes his letters, for example, with the assumption that the person reading the letter has a relationship with the elders, has a relationship with the members, is giving to their local church. These are things he just assumes. You read 2 Corinthians chapters 8 through 9. All of that section is written about the finances, the giving, uh, the offerings of the church, and he just assumes that you get it because he assumes you're operating in a healthy, biblical, sound ecclesiology, okay? And so everything, can you think of anything in the New Testament, especially in the, the epistles, that is written that is not connected in some way to the reality of the local church. I, I can't. All the imperatives, uh, which is number two, of the, of, the, of, of the Bible, the epistles. I'm mainly thinking of the epistles because, you know, to the Colossians, to the Ephesians, to the Philippians, you know, to the Thessalonians. All of these are congregations. The book of Hebrews is written to a congregation. The book of Hebrews is an ancient sermon. Uh, at least that's what most... Uh, most commentators would suggest is that Hebrews is actually an early sermon. And if, if, you, read, if you read the book of Hebrews 
uh, kind of uh, steady and casually. It amounts to about 45 minutes of reading, so that's where we get the 45-minute sermon. No, I'm just joking. But, <laughs> but it is kind of interesting that it amounts to about 45 minutes. But, uh, but that, that letter is written to a congregation, and it's steeped in ecclesiology, you see? And so all the imperatives in, in the Bible make absolutely no sense if you don't participate in the local church. You see that? And that's why there's no excuses at some fundamental level. Whatever excuse you're ever going to hear, anyone is ever going to give you, just remember, those excuses are just excuses. They're not actually good reasons. They're just excuses of why that person is not in the local church, committed to a church, in membership with a church. And so what I would say to that person in the interest of trying to uh, show them a more faithful way, is I, was, I would ask them, there's a number of imperatives that you can't obey as a Christian. How do you obey the injunction to give to your local church, to submit to your leaders, right? To support your pastors, uh, to pray for one another. Uh, you know, I'm thinking of things like, again, church discipline. How do you engage in church discipline? Uh, let me give you one example. Turn to... Second uh, Corinthians chapter two. Second Corinthians chapter two. This is a this is a congregationalist's favorite verse, <laughs> one of the favorite congregationalist passages. But uh, where's that at here? Yes, Second uh, Corinthians chapter two, verse five through seven, uh, or actually five through eleven, is a whole section on church discipline. Somebody was uh, undermining Paul's authority, going around the church, basically saying Paul's not an apostle, stirring up all kinds of trouble, eventually resulting in church discipline, okay? Now look at what it says here in verse 6. Sufficient for such a one, 2 Corinthians 2, 6. Sufficient for such a one is the punish, punishment which, which was inflicted by the majority. That word there... The majority is actually the Greek word that entails the slipping up of the hand. And so apparently, this church discipline issue was a matter of voting. <laughs> and so how are you going to vote in church discipline if you're not part of the local church? Furthermore, let's tease out the logic a little bit more. Who are the elders going to allow to vote in a church discipline setting? Anyone? So is a visitor going to vote for church discipline? <laughs> They're just visiting the church. They're not part of the church. So it assumes that you have a formal identification with the church such that the task of church discipline is entrusted to you. You see what I'm saying? And so this is, this is where theologians come to these practical ecclesiastical conclusions. Okay, They're not just haphazard. It's not just people trying to have good church order for the sake of order. It's, it's exegetical. It's there in the text. Uh, here's another one, another reason, number three, the sacraments. How, do you, uh, how does a person who is not formally identified with the local church, how do they participate in the sacraments? Uh, let's start with baptism. Uh, I had a gentleman come to me once years ago. He came to me and he said, uh, he had two daughters, and he said, hey, um, I have a couple girls I need to baptize. You have a problem with that? That's exactly what he said. And uh, it, what he was saying was like, I want to baptize my daughters, you know. So I said, well, I said, you know, uh, in our church, you know, we usually, 
uh, we usually want the officers of the church to do the baptizing, you know, because then what ends up happening is that kind of opens up a Pandora's box where, you know, my neighbor's baptizing me because I like him, you know. <laughs> it just, where does it end? You know, once we let you baptize your daughters, then, 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 then you know, where does that really end? You know what I'm saying? And so, I, and, and, you know, I've seen this. I've had friends who have asked, just good friends of theirs, who knows what their spiritual condition really is, that they got saved, they want to get baptized at the beach, and will you baptize? Yeah, let's just go, let's get, get baptized. You know, just this haphazard, fast and loose kind of approach to the sacrament of baptism. And so what we would say is that without a formal connection to the local church, how do you faithfully do baptism? How do you faithfully take the Lord's Supper? Uh, all of those connections there to the Lord's Supper. Matter of fact, uh, if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, look at what Paul says there about taking the Lord's Supper. I grew up in Calvary Chapel, and in Calvary Chapel, um, at least the one I was a part of for many years, it was really cool to take the Lord's Supper on your own. And so they would just leave the elements out, and people can just come, and at your leisure, you can just come and grab the elements and go off to a corner somewhere and pray and, and, and take the Lord's Supper by yourself. And, and, and for years, I thought, oh, that's great. You know, it's very intimate with the Lord, and it's very private and all of that. But the more I studied the Lord's Supper, the more I understood that, no, this is to be a corporate affair. This is something the church did as a body. It kind of defeats the purpose to do it on your own because you're not speaking about what the sacrament entails. The sacrament entails, you know, putting the body of Christ together, having a regard for the body of Jesus, which represents the church. And so uh, I think he says here uh, in verse 17, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17, but in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you have come together for the better, uh, not for the better, but for the worse. Okay, so, you know, obviously the section on the Lord's Supper here is actually a rebuke because they were not taking the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner. And then he says, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, and that, of course, means as an assembly, ecclesia, right? Ecclesia, whatever. I hear that divisions exist among you. So right there for the Apostle Paul, he understood that the Lord's Supper was taken in the context of the church when it gathers together. And so uh, the sacraments are, are something that if you're not connected to the local church, how can you faithfully execute the sacraments? Any questions about that? Because I know that's a big, that's kind of a big, broad subject, but... Um, any, any, any objections to that that you might have? I don't know, anything like that. So my personal conviction is we don't take the Lord's Supper at home uh, with my family. We don't engage in taking the Lord's Supper. Uh, I don't think seminaries should be taking the Lord's Supper. Uh, I don't think we should be doing evangelistic outreaches where we take the Lord's Supper, you know, things like that. I think that is strictly confined to the local church where the Lord's Supper is under the supervision of the elders. Yes, ma'am. Oh, excellent. What if somebody is bedridden or homebound and they can't get up? Yeah, that's right. Uh, the church should have a ministry uh, for those folks where elders go out to those homes and they should officiate the Lord's Supper with them in private. And so that would be one legitimate exception. So, uh, but be careful, uh, be careful when your theology consists of exceptions. You don't build theology based on exceptions to the rule. You see what I'm saying? Uh, that is a providential issue. In other words, you are providentially hindered by God 
if you literally cannot come to the church and take the Lord's Supper, you have been providentially hindered. That would be, to me, the only legitimate. It's kind of like, why don't you go to church on Sunday? Well, you know, you had some important stuff come up or something. Okay, I can understand certain things, but uh, as I said before, the main reason why you don't come in church on Sunday is because God has hindered you from coming. So it means you're sick or you had some tragedy or you had some, you know, you had some circumstance that just absolutely prohibits you from coming. Okay, that's understandable, but not, you know, many of the excuses that people have made. Well, my, my kid had a birthday party and, you know, we rented a bouncy house and, you know, that takes precedence over the church of God. <laughs> I mean, it just, it just, you know, it takes my breath away sometimes to hear the excuses that I've heard throughout the years. And you're going to hear some of these. So let me just keep going. Uh, lest I don't get anywhere here today, but the local church and God's authority. So again, uh, it's a total disregard for the authority of the local church. When a person doesn't want to identify with the local church, you must understand something, and I just challenge you guys to think about this, that the local church is the only institution on planet earth wherein God has vested his authority. He hasn't invested his authority in any other religious institution. There is no missionary institution, there's no evangelistic institution, there's no apologetics institution that has been invested with the authority of God. Okay, you may serve God, you may engage in ministry, you may be a parachurch organization that's connected to the local church or something like that, but you don't have the authority of Christ within that ministry, you just simply don't. The authority of Christ is only found within the church. And so there's so many uh, uh, places that I think about, but can you guys think of any verses that would teach that? Matthew 18, that's the one I have down, yeah. Why Matthew 18? Uh-huh. Any other reason why you would say that Christ's authority is there at, the, at that level? Dun, 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 dun. Come on, Jared. You're not wrong. I just thought of a, I'm just thinking of one of the verses in that passage of Matthew 18, and maybe I'll read it for us. It's one that's often misquoted, right? It's like one of those verses that's often abused. And that's in verse 19, Matthew 18, 19. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. And so how many times have you heard as you're doing evangelism on the street, this is my church right here, you know. <laughs> the bar is my church, you know, because where two or three are gathered, you know. <laughs> I've met a couple believers in there, so this is, the church is everywhere, you know. <laughs> you hear this kind of... Uh, you know, this kind of crazy ecclesiology, you know what I mean? But Paul, uh, Jesus here is saying something very powerful. Now, now look, 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 look with me here to a parallel passage. You go back to uh, first, uh, let's see, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, where we looked at the, 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 the passage on voting, okay, the implication there. Look, look at what Paul says here. And I think this is, a, this, is a, uh, this is actually a conclusion that we should all come to. Uh, Paul says there at, at uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, uh, beginning of verse 10, as this church engaged in church discipline, look at what Paul says, but one whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sake in the presence of Christ. Now, why is that such a big deal? 
because it almost sounds like what Paul is saying is, I stand with the decision of the local church. I'm ready to stand with the authority of the, of the church and the decision of the elders, whatever was made there, so that if you forgive that, that brother in the case of that church discipline issue, uh, Paul is saying, I'm ready to stand with the authority of the local church to side with it. And that's good, and that's, I think that's where... Uh, I think, I think that's what we want to do. We don't want to, uh, you know, we don't want to meddle in other church affairs in a sense, you know what I mean? But at the same time, like, I, we don't, we also don't want to undermine the decisions that a church has made. That's kind of not our place. I've been put in interesting positions like that, actually. Had a situation a long time ago where I was speaking at a church where a church discipline issue had gone down. And members of the church that I was a part of, they didn't really want me going and speaking there because they, they did not agree with the decisions of the local church that happened there and insisted that I not go preach there. Wow, I was a little shocked. But I told them, look, and I quoted this verse right here. I said, look, I, I, it's not, I cannot overthrow the decision of that local church. I, I, I'm just going to trust that the elders did they did their due diligence and, and, and all of that, but I'm not going to go against the authority of the local church over there. You know, it's not my place to do that. So anyway, just interesting, right? Also, uh, the, presence of, the presence of God is with the local church. Again, that same verse, I am there in the midst of you. It's almost like God has promised to be here with us, to be among us. Uh, I, I just believe when the, when the saints assemble, Christ is in our midst, and he's in our midst in a unique fashion, in a unique way, and uh, that's something that we should treasure as a people, and so it's almost like there's a dimension of that presence of God where you're not going to be in, experiencing the fullness of that on your own doing rogue Christianity. You're just not, you know? I think because God loves to be in the midst of his people. He likes to operate upon and through his word, right? And so uh, that's, that's a big deal for me. Also, the apostolic pattern or the apostolic tradition, that this is just the way the apostles did this. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 and 2, the apostle Paul there assumes that the local churches are meeting on the first day of the week. What's the first day of the week? Sunday. Right? So he just assumes when you gather, he says, on the first day of the week. So he just assumes you're going to do it. <laughs> so it's just the, the pattern of the apostles uh, that saints be gathered together on the first day of the week in commemoration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's when he rose on the first day of the week. And guess what Jesus did on the first day of the week when he rose? In each first day appearance, you go through the Gospels, he appears in the midst of his disciples. So he's gathered with the disciples on the first day of the week when he makes these appearances throughout the, the, the Gospels, which is just interesting. And so therefore, um, we are in the apostolic tradition when we do this, and we are not in the apostolic tradition when we don't do it. So for example, why don't we meet on the Sabbath? Well, that's a big can of worms. <laughs> you guys know Saiten Brugenkate was here the other day, right? We went out to eat, and uh, we had a little... A little arm wrestling match on the Sabbath, but he's Sabbatarian, firm Sabbatarian, you know, and I'm, I'm not, not, not a Sabbatarian in that sense. I think Saturday is still the Sabbath, you know, according to the Bible. I don't see anywhere where 
according to Reformed theology, many of the confessions and whatnot say that the Sabbath moved from Saturday to Sunday. You know, I don't know where the Bible teaches that, but, but, uh, but anyway, you know, it's kind of like, why don't we meet on Saturday instead on, you know, why don't we meet on Sunday, not Saturday? Why are the seven-day Adventists wrong? You know, insisting that we meet on Saturday because that's the Sabbath. I would say the Seventh-day Adventists are even a little bit more consistent, you know, because I think the Sabbath is still on Saturday. But anyway, uh, no, because we have to follow the apostolic pattern the way that they did it. And they did it for the purpose of the resurrection, commemorating the resurrection. Amazing, right? Because every Sunday we come in here, we are commemorating the resurrection of Jesus, right? And the resurrection of Jesus, just to kind of back it up with some theology, the resurrection of Jesus is kind of the commemoration of a new creation. It's almost like what happens after the Sabbath on the Jewish calendar. Well, after the Sabbath on the Jewish calendar is, is kind of, you know, eventually what it lands on the year of Jubilee. And Jubilee is commemorating a new creation. The whole sabbatical land was to go back to its original condition, the condition that they found it in when they first took conquest of Canaan. All of that is commemorating the new creation. So anyway, that's a, you guys know I love biblical theology, but, but that's kind of where it's at. Also, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Look at the last one. Watch out. What's the last reason we have to be identified with a local church? Because of the path of apostasy. One of the most famous passages on church membership and church attendance and things like that is right here in Hebrews, and it's a verse that most of you could probably quote. Look at what it says there in verse 24. Let us consider how to stimulate one another love and good deeds, and so then one another theology there. Not forsaking our own assembling together. That's the word there, ecclesia as is the habit of some. Now, you read commentaries on that when it says the habit of some is a pejorative statement uh, where the, uh, the writer here is making a contrast between, in a sense, the faithful and the non-faithful. Just, you know, no, pulling no punches here. As is the manner of some, and that group is not in a good place. Right? And he says, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, in the original Greek text, there's no uh, headings to sections and, you know, there's no, <laughs> you know, there's because no, mine says Christ or judge, you know, uh, like a new, a new section begins here, right? But this actually builds on what he, what, what he just said. He says, for if we go on sinning, look at that. So how's the logic go together there? He goes from assembling one another together, even as you see the day drawing near, for, then he makes an argument, if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. And then he says, but a terrifying expectation of judgment, fury, fire, which will consume the adversaries. Wow, it's kind of like, what a transition. We go from stimulate one another, love good works, to fire consuming the enemies, you know? And so the relationship is this, is that to the degree that you fail to identify with the gathering together, the assembly where we stimulate one another for love and good works, you are, in fact, identifying with some, those who refuse to do that and are on the path that leads to destruction, which is, wow, what a sobering thing. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I've been in conversations with people about church and church attendance and church membership and stuff like that where... Uh, tell me if you guys have seen this, but where there's just a resistance, there's just a aversion 
to accountability and, and, and to church and this aversion that it's just like, like a wall you can't really penetrate. And then you wonder what's going, what's going on spiritually with you that you're just so resistant to the church and to membership and fellowship and accountability. Something's wrong there, you know? And that's why I think the book, uh, this passage in Hebrews is so relevant. But uh, uh, how about this? Um, when we think about having a high view of the local church, where does that begin? Um, I could have begun in different places, but where I decided to begin was just to think about God's love for the church and uh, God's love for the church. I want to pick one, Acts chapter 20, go there real quick, which is kind of the, I mean, to me, it's, it's one of the ultimate statements here dealing with this very subject. Acts chapter 20, verse 28, when we think about the church, and this is what I was praying about, like, Lord, give us the same perspective that you have about the local church. When I think about God's perspective to the local church, the Bible says God died for the church, you know? Uh, what does it say here? It says, uh, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among whom the Holy Spirit has made you overseers uh, and shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood, which is a very interesting, uh, interesting text because there um, you could have read the church of God and thought that what Paul was talking about there was the church of the Father, the church of the triune God, right? Undefined, the word is just God. We would, you know, as Trinitarians, what member of the Godhead is he talking about, you see? And sometimes, typically, when it's not uh, explained, God is usually referring to the Father, okay, just so you guys know that hermeneutically. Unless there's precedence for determining that that reference to God in the Bible is referring to Christ or to the Spirit, we typically take theos as a reference to God the Father, okay? But here, he says, which he purchased with not Christ's blood, but it says his own blood. <laughs> so there, right, what, what, what Paul is saying here is that uh, 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 the church of God here is the church of Christ, right? That's saying, so here's a really great passage on the deity of Christ, because here Paul is saying the one who shed his blood for the church is God, you know, and we know who shed his blood for the church. It's Jesus Christ, so Jesus Christ is God, but just think of the depth of what that's saying there, right? Uh, just to add a little bit to the emotion, uh, remember what he says in verse 31, just to add a little bit of the emotion I just see here, wow, this is a shepherd indeed, Look at what Paul says. Therefore, be on alert. Remember that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. And so Paul really cares about the church. He so cares about the purity of the church. The do Here it's mainly like the doctrine of the church, not letting false teachers arise. Because what does it say? He says, you know, like, uh, you know, uh, did he say it already? He talks about verse 29. I know that verse 29. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. And so, for the apostle Paul, you know, it just was uh, it was just maddening. You know that his children here would be sus you know, subject to some wolf coming in, and you know what I'm saying. I was at the store uh, yesterday. And I heard this little girl screaming and crying, and she was calling out for her mommy. She must have been three years old. It reminded me of Eden, but 
And she's just crying for mommy, looking around. She's ready to walk out the store looking for mommy. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. It's like, no, 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 back in the store. <laughs> you know, like, I don't want to touch you because I don't want somebody to be like, hey, what are you doing with my daughter? But, uh, you know, it's just kind of crazy. I just like, it broke my heart. Here, this little girl is just wandering around without her parents, you know, lost, trying to find mommy. And who knows where she was over there shopping or something. And I was just like, oh, this is, what a horrible feeling. I just got this feeling in my stomach. Like, oh, I hope this little girl's not lost. You know, just the way I'm wired is I think the worst right away, you know. But, uh, but it was kind of like that. Paul just, he couldn't bear the thought of his people being uh, subject to these false teachers and having these false teachers have any sway So because he loved the church. And so what I'm saying is, the person that doesn't have this view of ecclesiology, the question is, is do they really love the church? Look at the list. The church is God's people. It's his bride. It's his household. It is his temple. They are his redeemed. That's that verse. Look at verse 18, you guys, which is kind of a staggering. should humble all of us. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18. The Bible says we are God's inheritance. It's kind of like, wow, I'm the inheritance of God? Like, you know, well, maybe not you by yourself, but, <laughs> you know, but, but you, but us collectively as a church, as a body, because of what we represent, because we are the, we're like the culmination, you know, we're, we're the grand crescendo of redemption. And so, you know, as the culmination of redemption, it's like we are his, we are his trophy at the end of the line, you know, like that's what we, that's what he inherits is this, is this church, you know, a throng of innumerable multitudes of people worshiping and praising him. That is God's inheritance at the end of redemption. Incredible, you know, and, and, and people want to mess around with the church, you know. It's just not good. And we are his glory. His, uh, his glory here, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 8 through 11 there, really uh, talking about uh, how his glory is seen through the church. That's the passage that God manifests his glory, his wisdom through the manifestation of the church. Really remarkable. And here's the thing. Yes, we can talk about the universal church. So it's like his glory and his wisdom is manifested ultimately in the universal church. Yes, absolutely. But Paul is applying this to the local church, Ephesians. So it absolutely applies, you know. Uh, okay, next one here. Um, also, Christ's protection for the church. Oh, look at this verse, guys. So, you know, how, how do we know, you know, God loves the church, you know, the love of the church? First Peter chapter 2, verse 25, for your you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls, which that's a, that's a remarkable thing. And what's interesting about that Greek word guardian, uh, see if you've ever heard this Greek word before, episkopos. Know what that is? Anybody know what that word is? You raised your hand, Kristen. Oh, you're blaming Kadab? Okay. What does that mean, Kadab? Close. Elders presbyteros. Episcopal, what's that? Overseer, very good. Ding, 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 ding. It's like the price is right. Come on up. Overseer. Where do we see the word overseer in an ecclesiastical context? Well, 1 Timothy chapter 3, right? Verse, uh, verse 1, right? Where he says if someone desires the work of an overseer, right? Episcopos. Same word that he uses here for Jesus. So Jesus is like the overseer, the guardian, the, the supervisor of our souls. That's who he is. And therefore, 
we are under his care. And uh, 215, okay, so uh, how, do you, how do you know what kind of view of the local church you have? Can you guys read that? I was wondering if those sentences were gonna be intelligible. I wrote these sentences down because these are things I've actually heard people say. <laughs> I've actually heard these sentences myself. And so I thought, okay, I'm gonna write the ones that I've heard myself. So how do you know you have a high view, low view? Okay, this is low view of the local church. As long as I'm part of the universal church, I don't need to be part of the local church. Just recently heard that one. As long as I'm part of the universal church, I don't need to be part of the local church. I mean, that, there, there are cults that start that way, okay? Any questions, just if you wanna give any feedback on any of those, feel free. We only have like a minute, so go ahead. <laughs> yeah. Whew, that's good. Huh? That's better than raising your hand right there. <laughs> yes, sir. Well, I did find that earlier at the beginning where the universal church is the church, the invisible church, the church of the elect, basically the church of all believers from all time everywhere. Yeah. Versus the local church. Okay. So how about this one? As long as I'm serving in a ministry that I like, I don't need to be serving in my local church. And I have seen this time and time again. I've met people that are serving in a ministry that they like, whether an apologetics ministry, an evangelism ministry, a missions ministry, a, a homeless ministry, a, you know, something like that, anything. Uh, but they see that that qualifies for appropriate ministry, but not the local church. So it's like the, my priority is in this parachurch organization, not in my local church. And let me be very clear, as long as you're faithful to your local church, fine, engage in any parachurch organization that you want. Um, I've kind of actually, I've kind of gone back and forth on parachurch. Uh, I have, like, I've got friends who absolutely, adamantly reject all forms of parachurch ministry, even seminaries. They would say that absolutely there's no biblical warrant anywhere in Scripture for engaging in any other sort of formal ministry other than the church. I'm like, wow, you have a higher view of the local church than I do, brother. <laughs> you know, <laughs> but I've kind of gone back and forth. I do see that there are some ministries that can faithfully serve alongside of the local church, serve the church, aid the church in its furtherance of the gospel. I, I don't think that's bad. So uh, the other thing here is as long as I financially support my favorite ministry, I don't need to support my local church. Again, these are things I've heard these are things people have told me, right? Uh, I had a family tell me, we're not giving to the church because uh, we heard you make a statement once where you were thinking about buying a building and I don't want to support going into debt. It's like, wow, well, I was talking about like maybe in 10 years. <laughs> you know, I wasn't saying tomorrow we're going to go and buy a building that's way over our head and get the church in debt and, you know, drive us into the ground, you know? But think about that, uh, a word to any of you who want to be pastors, your word carries a lot of weight, and sometimes you can be very careful how you articulate things, because somehow I let on that I was ready to make this <laughs> multi-million dollar decision, you know? And so this family said, we're not giving anymore because we don't want to support that. Wow. Uh, but it just raises the other issue of like, is it enough just to give to a ministry that you think is more important? Maybe in your mind, you're, what you're thinking is, well, I don't want my money to go to missions, and so instead of supporting the local church, I mean, me and my wife, we, we just recently talked to an old friend who's been in the church forever and very solid individual. 
and just found out they're not giving because they don't think their, their, their offerings matter. In other words, the amount is so minuscule, they just figure, what's the point? I just keep it, you know, I mean, it doesn't make a difference anyway. What? <laughs> it's like, no, it's not, that's not the qualification of why you give, right? Uh, how about this one? As long as I have community, I do not need to be part of a local church. I can't even emphasize to you how many house church situations I've dealt with over the years and people that have told me. I remember one young lady distinctly. Well, my dad leads a home church. He's not really a pastor, but we kind of re- respect him like an elder. And that's the church. Is that the church? That is not the church, you guys. That's not church. That's a, that's a group. That's a religious gathering. That's a Bible study. But that is not the church, you see. And uh, it's amazing. You, you would think, no, no, Syria was not talking to you. See, this is why I don't, anyway. It's like, I loathe technology. Let me turn that off here. Uh, But any feedback on that? Any questions about that? Any? Yes, ma'am. Yes. Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, that's a really great question, Gail, because I'm not opposed to home churches. Uh, I think you can have a house church. Matter of fact, if you look at the New Testament, the vast majority of churches in the early church met in homes. But why did they meet in homes? Was that, was that by, yeah, it wasn't an imperative. It wasn't a command. It wasn't even by design. It was necessity. It was that the early church was so persecuted, it wasn't like they could just go rent a building down the street in the Roman Empire, okay? Everybody wants to kill Christians at this point, you know, pretty much. The Jews and the Romans, none of which uh, tolerated Christianity at that time, you know what I mean? But they also met in uh, Solomon's portico, so it wasn't just in a home, okay? Uh, and so, yeah, so what I would say is, you want to meet in a church, fine. What's, what's a home? Well, it's just a smaller version of this. It's just a building, right? Uh, but is there, are there elders? Hopefully plural. Are there deacons? Hopefully there are. are. Is there a faithful execution of the sacraments? The gospel is being preached, and will you engage in church discipline at this gathering? So if those conditions are there, uh, I, I, I personally don't have a problem with a local church type of, uh, type of, of deal. So any other questions? That's a big one, yeah. Well, if it's just one pastor running the show, um, it, it can be a true church as long as the other things are there, right? Preaching the gospel, uh, the sacraments are faithfully executed, the gospel is faithfully preached, there's no heresy or something like that, right? Uh, but I would say the more pure situation is always to have a plurality of elders. For example, I won't serve as a lone elder. I've kind of made that commitment a long time ago, so if... Uh, if uh, Lynn drops dead and God doesn't raise somebody up, you know, I'll tell you guys where to go to church, <laughs> you know. So it's just too risky to be one guy on your own uh, for many reasons. Any other questions? I, I've had, I've had uh, just for the record, I have plenty of brethren that totally disagree with me. They say it's, 
perfectly fine to be the lone pastor in a church. And what's my argument against that? Anyone? Come on, you know I've got an argument. <laughs> what's the argument against that? So if somebody's telling you, no, it's okay to be the lone pastor, I would say it's okay in the sense of maybe by necessity, okay, maybe you're in a mission field, maybe you're in a persecuted area. And <laughs> I mean, one pastor, we're glad to have that. Grateful for one pastor, but what, what, what would be my argument against that? Does anybody know? Yes, ma'am. Well, yes, the implications of that are many, right? Accountability, the wisdom, right? Sharing the load, you know, all of those things. But there's an exegetical reason why, and the reason why is because everywhere you see in the Bible where an elder is present, it's always in the plural. Paul never appoints one elder somewhere. It's always elders, okay? So... It's always plural elders, never plural sing or elder singular, okay? So we're, we're pretty much out of time, but uh, I hope that you've enjoyed it. Maybe one couple more as long as I come to church occasionally. Oh, yeah, this is, you know, pastors like, uh, you know, this is, this is a pet peeve for pastors. As long as I come to church occasionally, I don't need to attend any stated meetings of the church. You don't think I've dealt with this, but I have, uh, where people say, well, I go to the church, but like a church discipline meeting or a financial meeting, uh, I don't need to go to that. You know, that to me is such a low view of the local church. To me, that's just like, is that how you would treat your family? You know what I mean? Is that how we handle things in the home? You know, is that how we regard the church in light of everything we've read? You know, God's shedding his blood for the church. It's his bride, it's his people, it's his household. It's, you know, it's, it's his glory. You know, is that how we treat, you know, matters in the church? That's, that's terribly irresponsible. And the reason we're doing this whole series is because we, want, we don't want any of our members to hold any of these positions. We want you to have a much more uh, a pure uh, view of these things. Last one, why should I care about the church, about church discipline? In the church, I have nothing to do with it. And of course, it's for the same reason, because if it has to do with your church, it has to do with you. What does Paul tell us in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 14? We're all part of the same body, right? If one member suffers, we all suffer. The question is, is are we open to that kind of sensitivity? Are we willing to so love the brethren that when we see one member suffering, we all suffer? Uh, yes, absolutely, we should. And I didn't get through the rest of this. Uh, should I just get in trouble? And low view of the local church is seen by this. Poor attendance, avoiding fellowship, uh, uninformed members, basically people that don't know what's going on in their own church, uh, indifferent to sermons. <laughs> you guys know it's like undermining the pastors, which is sad. Uh, failure to give, which typically ends up being a heart issue. Refusal to lead. So refusal to lead, it means two things. If you're single, you won't lead yourself spiritually to this. You won't lead yourself in the church. If you're married, men will not lead their homes in such a way that they're faithful in this way. So maybe we'll pick up here next week, but uh, oh, I had so much more to say about that. Yeah, this could end up turning out to be 12 weeks instead of six. So we'll see what happens. God bless us. Let's take a little break and to get ready for service, okay?